you're about to get lucky. With the Bare Naked Money podcast, the show that gives you the naked truth about personal finance. With your hosts, Josh Shellick and Colin White, portfolio managers with WLWP Wealth Planners, IA Private Wealth. Hello, everyone. Colin and Josh here, as usual, for your Bare Naked Money podcast. And we're really excited today because we have special guest Hugh McPhee with us. Hugh comes to us as an advisor to some of Canada's most successful leaders. He's also the founder and partner of McPhee as a firm that is helping Canadian organizations thrive on the world stage, providing guidance on team, culture, development, branding, strategy, leadership, a whole host of different things. And also the author of Don't Forget Your Cape, What Preschoolers Teach Us About Leadership and Life. So Hugh, quite the interesting title to your book there. Welcome to the podcast. Josh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm honored to uh, to be able to join you and your listeners on our conversation today. Yeah, great. So we have a lot to cover today, Hugh. I think we were talking before the podcast here that we could probably talk for hours, but we'll try yeah. to condense some of the most relevant teachings that uh, that you can touch on for our listeners here. And one of the first things that, that I found very interesting that you have written about and provided some thought leadership on is your idea of magnetism. Well, why don't you explain to us and, your, and our listeners here, what is magnetism, the way that you define it? What is this philosophy? How did you come up with this? Yeah, Josh, it's a great, it's a great question. And I'll describe how the concept originally manifested itself and I think how it's relevant to certainly the work we do. And I think it'll be interesting to a lot of, uh, a lot of your clients and listeners. So, so the genesis of magnetism thinking, which is basically the core of everything we do within our firm, is we try to link all of our work back to, you know, what does magnetism and being more magnetic imply with respect to uh, either strategy work or branding work or, or creating an engaging and, and, and high-performing culture. And the core question that I found super interesting was, what do people cheer for and why? What do people cheer for and why? And <clears throat> I give a keynote on this and I'll just quickly describe some of the first slides I present. And a reason, easy way of thinking about it is when you watch Jeopardy, right? If you ever turn on Jeopardy, Weirdly, we all wind up cheering for someone within a couple of seconds. Why is that? Like, what is going on in our brains? And it's not even in, in the frontal lobe. It's the, it's like in the recesses of our brains. And I thought, huh, could you imagine it? How do you harness cheering? How do you deconstruct why people cheer for or against not just contestants on Jeopardy, but a spaghetti sauce in the grocery aisle or a stock you might like or not like? or hockey team or a soccer team or a professional sports team. So, so what's going on there? Like what is actually happening in people's brains um, that lead them to cheer for or against things? And so, so when I thought a little bit more about that, we came up with magnetism thinking. There's really seven key questions that we go through in order to help organizations to become more magnetic, which speaks to you know, really understanding a target audience, really understanding how you then position your organization to help articulate to that target audience is how you're making the world a better place. And then imbuing that through your storytelling, your culture, your systems and processes and the key things that you measure. So, so it's a topic to your point from before, Josh, that I could talk about for hours, but the bottom line is all things are either positively or negatively magnetic, be that a brand, a person or an organization. Well, it's kind of interesting that, you know, I think the most interesting thing to our listeners is the fact that you define this as something that's subconscious, like it's. 
you just wake up one day and I do this all the time. Like I have to pick a favorite. I have to order mm. things and that's partially my, my, my disorder, my disease. But what I've learned to do with myself is to question, like, how did I get there? You know, right. and I think that's the most valuable part being self-aware. Now you can't possibly question every inclination you have, but to understand if you're being attracted to something mm -hmm. subconsciously and you just wake up one day and say, well, wait a second, why do I like this so much? Ask that question, you know, because mm -hmm. I think from an individual's perspective that equips you better in the world to be maybe less swayed in unintended ways, uh, and potentially stay more on course with where you're trying to get. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting way that magnetism again is an involuntary attraction to something is how I envision it. So, you know, asking questions along the way, I think would be very uh, helpful skill for people to remember. Yeah, no, that's, it's a great point, Colin. You, you speak to the magnetor and the magnet, and if you're the magnetee and we, you know, there's tons and tons of statistics and research around this, but we're all exposed to literally thousands of impressions every day, uh, be it from the aforementioned spaghetti sauce in the grocery aisle to you know, what's happening in the markets today to, to, uh, you know, the exposure to any stimulus that we encounter and our brains can't handle it. Right. And that's to your point, because there are some things that our brains just need to, to process involuntarily. Otherwise we couldn't make it through the day, but there are some things we have to say, okay, hold on. Uh, maybe I'll go pick the spaghetti sauce and choose the ragu over the primo. But if I'm making an investment decision, just because you know, everyone's, everyone else is hopping into something and I'm fearing of missing out in the FOMO world. That's where I think it's important to be cognizant and to acknowledge without apology that there's folks like me helping organizations to manufacture consent without mm -hmm. apology. Yep. And, well, and, and, and so then therefore, you know, having that honest, sober second thought, I think is super important for everyone who is in your world. And that's why organizations like yours are so important today especially right now when it's not just fear of missing out, it's fear of getting killed. And, uh, you know, then, you know, here we are, we're talking uh, in late June, 2022, you know, for those who are listening later on, it's been a horrible few months in the market after a glorious couple of years. And so, so the swinging of the pendulum is, uh, is highly relevant to your point, Colin. It's funny. You talk magnetism, Hugh, and the influences that are out there and one that is somewhat related to our world, someone not. I just think of Elon Musk and he's so polarized, Yeah, no pun intended, polarizing and also magnetic for people on both sides, either drawing you in or repulsing you at the same time. Yeah. There's, we could spend uh, several days talking about that. I'll, I'll speak to one aspect of Elon Musk that uh, came up with a very important conversation that's relevant to the sets of friends of mine over the weekend. Related to, I don't know if it's pronounced Dogecoin or, or whoever. Let's, uh, help me if I'm getting Doge. this wrong. Do Doge. Doge, yeah. And, and uh, you know, people were awaiting on Saturday Night Live. Was he going to shout it out? And, you know, the price of this ethereal idea would go up and down based on, you know, uh, whether or not he pronounced on it. I think it's a really interesting point. And, you know, I'll welcome your further builds on this, but it really speaks to what is ethereal and what's material and what's real. And, you know, a, a fundamentally the core laws of economics, the core laws of, of what's, uh, valuable haven't really changed much in a few hundred years. They really haven't. Now the challenge with that is, is a lot of people are getting super rich off of things out of the, out of ideas and speculation recently. And, and again, I'll let you speak to this, but a lot of that in retrospect was driven by low interest rates. 
uh, and or the cult of personality. And so going back to Elon, you know, Elon a, is a fascinating guy. And if he says some, you know, if he blesses something, then that something will, will do well in the same way that when Kim Kardashian blesses something, that something will do well. Is it inherently better than it was four minutes ago before it said aforementioned people bless them? Well, not really. And therein lies, I think, a deeper conversation about the complexity of messaging today and what happens when there are those who are deemed opinion leaders and thoughtful bless something. Is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? And how, and you know, can you ride that in the short term? Maybe. Is it a good idea in the long term if the fundamentals are there? Probably not. Well, no, it's not an investable idea if it's based on a whim, you know, uh, but the problem is that the market for get rich quick schemes or shortcuts is inexhaustible. You know, the yeah. demand is yeah. immeasurable. Yeah. Therefore, when you have a demand supply imbalance, because again, there are no true quick ways to do things, you know, there's going to be, somebody's going to jump into the market and provide it. Yeah. And to somebody like Elon Musk who get gathers a following and who look, people are following everything I say. And Hey, listen, some of this, he's actually, you know, capable of profiting off of the Kardashians have turned a whole, basically a whole career out of turning a profit off of having a big microphone and having people listen to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how the market's supposed to work. I guess you know, the challenge is that what people you know want really doesn't exist, you know, the, the shortcut or the get rich quick or what have you, but uh, that's not going to stop people from trying to position themselves to provide it or give the hope that it's there. It's almost like buying a lottery ticket in some respects, you know, you're buying yeah. the dream or you're listening to the dream, right? Colin, it's, I'll build on that. And we have the privilege in our firm to work with a lot of really cool organizations, be they small not for profits to up, including, you know, TMX 100 companies and the ones who I most admire the leaders who I most admire, it's not that they don't care about the next three months. They do, but they're really interested on in having a strategy, sticking with the strategy and providing long-term value to their team to their shareholders and to the broader, uh, to the broader market. And there's one leader in particular who I love dearly, who, you know, who has said, look, leadership team, if we're behind this and we agree with this, I'll go to our board, we'll go to our board and we'll back up the strategy and we'll say without apology, um, this is what we're going to do. Now, are there going to be good months and bad months? Of course there are, of course there are, but their focus is medium to long-term. And quite frankly, I would encourage more companies in this country to, to follow that, you know, quite honestly, and welcome your thoughts on this in other jurisdictions, like in Asia, they scratch their heads at the three months target reality. They think in generations and quite frankly, we'd better start thinking that way here in this country as well for us to be successful. Well, it's funny because, you know, Israel is the home of some very mm -hmm. famous economists. It's actually, they have regulations and laws against reporting any rate of return less than one year. You know, where I think that's enlightened thinking. It's well, it really, it really is. You know, so the the time it is an important thing. I mean, I've got a really unpopular life hack that I offer to people, and I say, you know, make every decision based on the outcome five years from now. And what's the right thing to do now that's going to put you in a better spot five years from now? It's really unpopular because again, it flies in the face of get rich quick and you know all these turnaround stuff. But if you can have a longer time horizon expectation than those around you, it leads you to a different path and perhaps a more sustainable path. Uh, but we in the investment game are terrible. I mean, it, you know, my phone can give me updates at one tenth of a second on, on things that I probably should only look at once a year. And, you know, there's all this technology out there to give us all this information and there's not enough time being spent on saying, you know, is it helpful or should you have that information or is it just going to make for worse decisions, right? And the investment industry has done quite a bit of work on, yeah, more information does not necessarily lead to better decisions. And I believe that there's other 
jurisdictions or other you know schools of thought on on the same mm -hmm. thing more information does not always lead to better decision making in fact at a certain point it begins to lead to worse decision making right which which brings us back to planning and which brings us back to having a plan and which brings us back to being courageous enough to more or less stick with that and that's the advice that we give to to uh, those with whom they're privileged you know, to work with and you know once once with the plan is established, then we encourage them to avoid shiny new balls. Now, the challenge of that is we live in a VUCA world, and I suspect most of your listeners know what that means. This is a, it's a volatile, uncertain, very hard to predict environment. And it's funny, I was speaking to a client just this morning, and, uh, you know, again, it's late June, 2022. A year ago, we had 0.5% interest rates, no war in Europe. Uh, inflation was non-existent. We were sort of kind of in the middle of the pandemic still, but people were looking forward to that being, being over and getting quote unquote back to normal. Today, it's one year later and we live in an entirely different world. Many of the realities we now face would have been nearly impossible to predict. Super smart people with computers smarter than mine might've been able to do it, but not really. So therefore what? Have your plan, but be flexible. And I think that's where, you know, organizations like yours are super helpful today because, you know, is it appropriate to say, you know, we have, we had a plan and we decided this is where we're going to go, but there has been a force majeure that leads us to believe that we need to make some tweaks to this and to do so in a sober, thoughtful and intelligent way, rather than a panicky, reaction oriented, emotional way. Yeah. Well, you talk about the difficulty in predicting and forecasting the future. And this is sort of circling back to one of the other principles that I've heard you and your organization talk about, Hugh, and that's the idea of scenario planning and how that can be effective in helping you plan a way forward. So give us some more guidance on what you suggest in that realm. Yeah, happy to do so. And scenario planning is a subset of having a vision and having destinations and having key goals. So, so it really starts with what is the vision of you know, a person's, you know, financial aspirations or an organization's vision for how they're going to make the world a better place. Within that context, however, prudent and thoughtful organizations will take the time and make the time to think about, you know, well, what, what could happen and, uh, and what are some scenarios we need to be thinking about actively and plan for those and do some role playing and or some wargaming, frankly, around what that might be. And, uh, and much as, uh, as this is an individual who, whom I no longer frankly have much respect for, uh, there was a time. Uh, that Rudy Giuliani was uh, a leadership guru based on his time as mayor of New York, his management of uh, the horrific events of September 11th. And I saw him speak once. Um, this was years ago before, uh, before he, he kind of went sideways. But he had a really interesting point. And the point that he made was the city of New York didn't have a game plan for what to do if two airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center towers. They did not have a plan related to that specifically. However, what they did have was a binder ready to go if there was a terrorist attack in lower Manhattan. So guess what they brought off the shelf that morning? Let's take off the, and again, a, phys a physical binder in those days. What do we do if there's a terrorist attack in lower Manhattan? And I'm paraphrasing, that probably got them about 66.67% of the way to what they needed to do in the, on that horrific morning. Not perfect. They need, still needed to improvise. They still need to reduce the level of panic. But as leaders, when, you know, when the, when things go horrifically wrong and there's a crisis, 
it's not bad when our brains shrink in those moments because our brains do shrink in those moments to have something uh, that was developed in moments of clarity prior to when that happens. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind in the investing world because look, you know, again, we were speaking today, the markets are not doing so hot. Will they get better? I think they will. When, how, we're not sure, but let's have a plan. I mean, the, the parallels are actually very strong from an individual in making decisions. And I'll go on record as saying you can't predict the future with sufficient enough success to make it worthwhile. So anybody who relies on that as a method of finding your way through the world, even if you get it right 19 times out of 20, you get it wrong once and all your advantage is going to go away. So any thought or strategy on knowing what's going to happen next with any kind of detail, I think is going to fail at some point. But the act of going through the planning process, and again, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, to quote uh, mm. General Tommy Franks in, in Iraq, you know, because as soon as you have a plan, it becomes stale. But what a plan does is allow you to organize your thoughts and allows mm -hmm. you to or organize all of your, uh, all of your assets to understand, okay, I understand where everything is on the playing field right now. And if something changes, I'm now starting from a point of being organized. And if I put some thought into the scenario planning, as you discussed, and that's fantastic, I may have an inkling of where to get started. And you're right, because in the moment of stress, everybody's brain shrinks. Correlations go to one. I mean, a lot of things change in a hurry. And if you're trying to digest it all in real time and make a decision, you're, you've got high expectations of yourself, for sure. But it, the, the key is to understand when the environment changes, you know, does that, you know, the questions we're dealing with now is like, should I change my plan mm -hmm. based on this event? And that, that, that can be a subjective thing. At what point you know, do you consider changing a plan or, or, you know, coming up with a fresh plan in a moment in time? Because again, it's the human brain's ability to project forward in a straight line is, you know, if the market goes down two months in a row, that means obviously it's going to zero because my last two data points were in this direction. Therefore that's where it, it's going to crash. It's like, I understand how you got there, but no, that's not how it works. Yeah. Colin, I love where you're going with this. And. You know, it encourages us all to think about being very rigid on, you know, core purpose, core values, and core fundamental objectives, and very fluid on how we get there. Mm. And, and this is advice we give our clients all the time. And in fact, I was asked this recently, you know, the, in organizations, purpose statement or mission and vision, you know, should be etched in expensive granite and put on the wall for a, a generation, you know, then going further and further into a strategic plan, you get to, you know, objectives and priorities and objectives and key results. Those things should be highly fluid. And if they're not changing on a somewhat regular basis, then they're missing the point, right? So the further up you get, the more rigid one's thinking should be and more, the more one should be very judicious about changing, uh, one's fundamentals. But for goodness sakes, within the context of that plan and the context of strong values and principles set, you know, being flexible is, you know, the way of today, just because the world was changing so fast, right? But Colin, I loved your point. Yeah. I think that the key to success to, to circle back to one of your earlier points is the way I frame it is, you know, people have X number of decisions they can make in the run of a day. You know, whether that's 150 decisions, 200, there's a finite amount. Cause I know myself, if I get to the end of a long day, deciding what to have for supper is just beyond me. Like whatever's in front of me, I just. <laughs> no, I, true. I, <laughs> no. And, and the science bears that out. Like that, that is actually empirically proven. Yeah. And so my wife's going like, what do you mean? You don't know. I said, I seriously don't know. If you ask me to make one more decision, I may slip into a coma. Mm. Uh, so uh, 
with treating decision-making as a finite resource, where do you spend your time? I mean, to me, that's mm -hmm. the art form and that's where the true success is, you know, for an individual, like, no, should I be spending my energy on, on, on digesting this particular piece of information or this variable that has changed? Is this where I should, and the, your level of success is going to be, are you focusing on the salient points? Are you focusing on the stuff that you can actually make a decision on to change an outcome? You know, cause I mean, trying to figure out why the market went down today. I mean, Josh, I mean, you're going to have some fun with that. I know you will at the end of the day, <laughs> but you know, that's recreational for you, but for people to try to in real time discern yeah. these things at the end of the day, what are you going to do with that information? Like, is that going to change what you're going to do tomorrow? You know, I'm not so sure it will because tomorrow's a new day and that information mm -hmm. may digesting that information may not put you further ahead. Well, I think what you're talking about as well, Colin, is the whole idea of a lot of the decisions we make are involuntary and Hugh, you've written about this as well as the, uh, the idea of using intuition to help you make decisions. And I suppose that sometimes like what you're having for dinner, whatever comes to mind first is perfectly fine. But a lot of other times, like what stock to buy or where do you invest your money for the next five years, using intuition may not be the most, uh, the most successful course of action. There was some research out of the Netherlands about a decade ago that spoke to sleeping on things and how sleeping on things is a thing. Like, and it actually does in some contexts help people make better decisions. However, and this is the big asterisk and caveat, that making a gut decision only works when you informed your gut. And so the gut needs to be full of data, data points and ideas. And then, you know, it, it, the, the, this is where the analogy falls. Then the recess of your brain does all this crazy math and it figures out, you know, maybe we should go this way versus that way. No longer a gut decision at that point. It's informed by uh, immense amount of data plus experience plus, you know, synapses firing in, in certain ways. Um, to your point, a mentor of mine once gave me a really neat analogy, which speaks to why FOMO and, you know, following the herd in investments is probably not such a hot idea. And his point is, you know, investing is more like going to the grocery store rather than going to the jewelry store. And, and you need to buy some boring stuff. Yeah. And maybe get a bag of chips and, and you know, and, and something cool, but you need some fruits and some vegetables and solid fundamentals, and then uh, maybe a couple of, of sexy things, but it's not like going and just buying bling and, and what's hot now. And, and I think that's a really interesting analogy that you need, you need a balanced diet <laughs> and, and, yeah. and a portfolio that's, uh, that's, uh, by definition, uh, intelligent based on whatever plan one has. The reason I use that is is an analogy is, you know, we see a lot of FOMO and people don't like it when they see someone else on social media saying, Hey, are you into crypto too? Or hey, are you into this too? And it's fascinating how all those bragging very quickly cease to comment when, uh, things go in, in the other direction and you can graph their activity based on, uh, on how well it's going. Anyway, just reinforces your point, Josh, right? Like let's be th thoughtfulness, fed intuition and working with others and not you know, just talk, talking to one or two other human beings also is not a bad idea as opposed to just keeping all things in one's own brain. Well, I mean, and to, to a certain extent, I mean, again, you work in the world of informing companies on strategies such as this, but I mean, I, you know, being a kid of the eighties, uh, when Air Jordans showed up and shoes became a popular thing, it was all about, you know, who can I get to wear my shoes? And they would be running around with cartfuls of shoes, trying to get the right people in the right place, seeing wearing shoes. Now, this is something that 
is pervasive. The mm -hmm. crypto guys are out there and they're trying to be seen and they're trying to be seen in a certain way. And, you know, there's, I guess for people who go, well, this is just randomly happening. Look, this person is telling me smart things. No, no, this isn't random. Like this is highly orchestrated and maybe more highly orchestrated and more fine tuned with technology than it's ever been. So don't just assume that you're bumping into a story. Oh, this story was aimed at you and craft it to make you feel a certain way. Back to my earlier comment about have a little voice in your head that goes, why am I cheering for this? And have that little critical thought in your head is maybe more essential than it's ever been. A good friend of mine was very fortunate to have received the highest compliment I've ever heard of a human being ever receiving. He was called pathologically contrarian. Mm -hmm. To me, that's, that, that, that is a huge compliment because in a day and age where it's all about those messages and trying to position them in such a way that you're going to consume them, being a little bit contrarian actually can go a long way towards yeah. protecting yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reminded of a great question, Colin, which builds on your point from, you know, from a business standpoint, I think it applies equally well to, uh, to investing into life in generally, which is why are we doing, and you know, if, uh, if a group is, uh, heading in a certain direction, I completely agree, Colin, it's very difficult sometimes to be that devil's advocate in any strategy and or life conversation. And I think this is a, a broader issue with respect to where we are as a country today, quite frankly. Um, you know, we need those voices to say, excuse me, is this actually a good idea? Is this good public policy? Is this good thinking? And, uh, to dare and have the courage to stick one's hand up and say, actually, I'm, I'm not sure if this is going to deliver on the intended, the intended goal of the intended aims. And I've had the chance to work within government and within public policy. And it's what I call the whack-a-mole theory, right? Because too often governments will try and solve one problem and then another one pop, pops up because the law of unintended consequences is alive and well as it's ever been. Uh, and the same is true in, in other contexts, but you know, thinking through to, you know, if we do this, what are, what's the initial implication, the secondary implication, the tertiary implication is something I'd like to see more organizations think about quite frankly. Yeah. Well, I, Hugh, one of the, one of the, one of the points that you, you, that we discussed and you've alluded to previous to this is, you know, Canada's place on the world stage. And I was wondering if we could get some comments from you on that topic and uh, i have a hidden agenda uh, because again our clients you know suffer from availability bias and you know they're heavily influenced by what's available to them and sometimes it's difficult for them to comprehend that canada's only part of the world mm -hmm. so canada's place on the world stage will you know perhaps disproportionately affect how we see the world from this particular seat but in a world where the globe uh, is very effective on certainly any investing that you're doing, um, yeah. you know, a large, a larger perspective would do you better. So, uh, I'd love to hear your comments on Canada's place in the world. And maybe if you could connect that to, you know, the perceptions of a Canadian mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe you're not serving them well and understanding their place in the world. Yeah. I'm ha happy to talk about that, Colin. And I do have a strong perspective on this and I have a worldview, which is that we do live and we'll continue to live in a globally competitive economy. And much as uh, there's a globalist perspective that is very popular these days, my own view is that the job of governments is to defend the national interest or to defend the provincial interest, period. That's what you get up in the morning to do. Because guess what? Leaders in other countries are getting up and they are defending their national interest or they're defending their provincial interest or their local interest. So when they must scratch their heads when they see policies that 
they look at on the surface and say, this is actually harming your economy. This is actually bad for you as a country that has certain natural strengths. Why would you do that? You know, picture the secret meeting of the French cabinet. And I used to live in France. I love France. They are unapologetic. They defend La France. It's La France first. And that's in their, it's in their blood. Um, and I, you know, pictured them, you know, scratching their heads and thinking about public policy. You're kind of like, did we do this? Was it the Russians that are doing this? Was the Israelis? Like, who's sitting public? Like, we've done a great job of messing up public policy in Canada. You know, there was a study that came out not long ago, I think it was from the OHCD, that predicts us to be 40th out of 40. 40th out of 40. So we got to get our act together when it comes to competitive productivity and doing those things that over time are proven to be good for one's economy, which in my mind include defending the national interest, making sure that regulations are there and in place, but not overly burdensome, keeping taxes low to attract uh, investment and ensuring that uh, uh, innovators can innovate and, are, and that government's out of the way and supporting that and not doing stuff. I think governments have a tendency to want to do stuff too much rather than just say, we're going to do less stuff and, and then therefore let innovation flourish. So maybe that's our next podcast friends, but <laughs> I'm very concerned that, uh, that the debate and the conversation has gone too far away and the pendulum has swung away from the very sexy topic of competitiveness and productivity, which, uh, which we need to be on top of lest we fall further in, in particularly jurisdictions that are very keen on ensuring that they're competitive and productive and and driving their own GDP. So Hugh, I'll ask a couple questions related to that. One, one is you mentioned tax policy and corporately in Canada, our corporate tax rate is probably below average relative to the rest of the world. So that's one comment I'd just like to hear your thoughts on. The other one is when you talk about protecting national interests, that can very quickly to me lead to, well, I, I should impose tariffs and import quotas and things like that, which I guess from an economic theory perspective would be counterproductive. So there must be some balance there that ensures open borders and a, a globally competitive environment, but without being overly protective. Yeah, no, and Josh, we're hundred percent aligned. In my worldview, protecting the national interest means more free trade. Sure. It, me it means more open borders. It means certainly domestically, that we reduce uh, tariffs and barriers between our own provinces. And, and that's crazy. I think most people would not understand that we have tariffs between provinces. And that just blows me away. Every time I hear about that, I am reminded, like, yeah. this is this makes no sense. What are we doing? Yeah. And so, so you know, I, I think beyond, you know, beyond the, the taxation side, I, I just think that there is a culture domestically that we need to really think hard about. And I'll share the story of a dear friend and client of mine. She's one of my favorite people in the world. She runs a big business. It's about a $5 million per year business. And she, you know, fully says like, she considers herself the entrepreneurial, like she, her margins are such that it's tough some months, literally tough some months to, uh, to, to stock away a couple hundred bucks to, to share with WLWP to invest for the next month. Like it, it, they're not starving, but they're not far off. And yet others say, well, you know, you've got a small business and you must be super rich. It's actually quite the contrary. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are those who, if they get sufficient reasons to drop out of the entrepreneurial economy, they will. And then guess what? Then we can't have the wherewithal to afford things in this country that we like and, and are important, like a great healthcare system, like a great education system, et cetera. Those things aren't free. 
they're not free. Right. And people need to really come to terms with that because I don't think a lot of the, frankly, and Josh, you're probably 26 or something like that. You look very young. Uh, but a, a lot of the other three would say clueless. <laughs> they are clueless, but we got to pay for this stuff. Like, we got to pay for like every time I say government should do more, like you got to pay for that. Someone is going to have to work more hours or do something that will pay for that. And especially now that interest rates are higher because that the days of free stuff is over. Well, that's, you know, the, the limitation of having a democracy. We ask everybody's opinion. And, you know, one of my favorite examples was Iceland back in 2008 when, you know, they were voting on whether or not they were going to pay back the money that they had received and to bail them out. It's like, do you want the money? Yes. You're going to pay it back? No. I mean, if you're going to vote, ask people to vote, that's, they're going to vote in their own self-interest and it's not going to make any sense. But again, it's agreeing on the overarching figure that's going to, you know, yeah. find a way forward. But I think the neat thing that you're shining a light on, which is again, fascinating for me and I think it's very important for our listeners to understand is because again being self-employed and having been self-employed and worked with a lot of self-employed people yeah if you own a bar you know you're the coolest guy in the street and you always you know have money in your pocket you must be rich and you know what having a lot of self-employed people's clients you're right you know you can have a big business but at the end of the day not a lot is out there but the perception is because of where you sit and what you know where you are in the world You've made assumptions about that. You know, the same mm -hmm. as sitting here as a Canadian, you make assumptions about how the world works and you know, being humble enough to say, you know what, maybe my global view is not comprehensive enough and I need to be open to, you know, a, a broader way of thinking is very important, but also very difficult to get to because it's just not natural. Which brings us back to short-term versus long-term thinking. Yeah. And it's easy to say what's good for me today, but what's good for one's own best interest and the broader best interest in the medium term. It's interesting. And, uh, you know, I'm coming from Ontario today and, and one of the parties in the recent election had a, a policy of like a buck a ride for, uh, for transit, which I, I talked to my, I have a kid who's in the university and he said, you know, some of his buddies said, yeah, it's awesome. But then they thought to themselves, like, they're smart. It's like, no, it's not. Because that's <laughs> going to mean I'm going to have to pay for all this stuff in 15 or 20 years when I want to be rich. And so in order for me to be rich, then I don't have more taxes then, because this is obviously, you know, you know, the worst kind of public policy thinking, which is, which is simply to try and buy curry to buy and curry favor. But, you know, people are that naive, I think. And I think in the scheme of politics, people are sometimes underestimated with respect to their sophistication. And I would encourage us all to, to be thinking that way. And again, back to your point from before, Josh, you know, what is in the national interest? Well, the national interest does mean, you know, the, following the science of what drives GDP period. Right. And this is, this, there, there are better ways and worse ways to do that. You know, we can learn it, it evolves like, but doesn't, it doesn't mean we don't need government. We do government's important and it does a lot of important things, but when it gets too much and too big and encroaches into areas, it should not. And, uh, and then crowds out investment and productivity, then, you know, then bad things happen. Yeah, that's exactly follows. If people feel bad, eventually they find a reason to feel bad and they feel worse. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for sure. I mean, you know, confidence is a fleeting thing being a former basketball coach. You know, when you had momentum, the hoop looked the size of a bathtub. That's not yeah. a problem. If you didn't have momentum, you were just running around trying to figure out which direction you're supposed to run in. And yeah. it really is the world of difference. And that transitions for me into everybody's life, to everybody's professional and personal life. And you're right. Yeah. You know, if we, if we get it in the wrong direction, it can take a lot to turn things back. 
Yeah. And to love that analogy, Colin, and I'm a late in life basketball fan, but yeah, like it, it is, you know, it's a long, it's long wave theory, you know, because you start to get some momentum. It can last minutes, quarters, or games. And if you get in the other direction, it can also last minutes, quarters, and, and games. And, uh, but again, there is ways of engineering success into those long waves. You know, I'd encourage everyone who's listening to this to think about hey, what do we need to do at a macro level from a public policy perspective to ensure that, uh, that we're kicking ass on the world stage and driving our GDP for it so that we can do nice things. Yeah. If you don't have the wherewithal to do nice things, you can't do nice things. Yeah. Well, you, you can put me in the camp of people that's firmly and fair in favor of doing the stuff that's required to pay for nice things, but I can tell you having raised kids and been a financial advisor for a lot of years, it's sometimes difficult to get a whole lot of people on the bus when the mm. next bus over is promising something quicker, easier, faster, and nicer. And it's got a Kardashian attached to it. <laughs> yes. Uh, indeed, which, uh, and which brings us back to short term, what's popular versus long term, what's best. You, sure. you, was there anything that we missed that you wanted to get into? This has been a great conversation. Really important. I think, uh, for people that you're serving and that you're working with, you know, to, to really think about again, on that macro basis, what can we do as a country to really kick ass on the world stage? And that's what gets me up in the morning. That's what, you know, my, my own firm's purpose is to help Canadian organizations be that, uh, a hospital or a publicly traded company or a startup to, to punch above its weight. And I just encourage all of us to think that way and to know that if we don't, there are other countries who are thinking along those lines. So let's just be prepared to, uh, uh, to be as awesome as we are and to celebrate the greatest as is Canada. Well, Hugh, on behalf of the great family that is bare naked money and, uh, all the people that are behind the scenes on putting this together, I want to sincerely thank you for coming on. It's been a fun conversation and it's always an interesting challenge to, to talk to people a little bit outside of, you know, what's exactly our wheelhouse, uh, because I mean, that's where, you know, you can actually change and grow your thinking. So thank you for engaging with us and having this conversation. It's been very informative and I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks you. This information has been prepared by White LeBlanc Wealth Planners, who is a portfolio manager for IA Private Wealth. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the portfolio manager only and do not necessarily reflect those of IA Private Wealth Inc. IA Private Wealth Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. IA Private Wealth is a trademark and business name under which IA Private Wealth Inc. operates. We've noticed something. It seems there are a lot of people who would rather try to figure out their lives with an online calculator than air your finances to a human. Stop doing that. You need to talk to someone who can help direct you, tell you where to start with what you've got to make the biggest impact on your future. You can't figure that out at doihaveenoughcash.com, but you can figure it out by chatting with us. Call us. It'll be okay. You'll see. Content of this presentation, including facts, views, opinions, recommendations, descriptions of, or references to products or securities, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, as an offer to sell, or the solicitation of an offer to buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any other security cited. Although we endeavor to ensure its accuracy and completeness, we assume no responsibility for any reliance upon it. 
They should not be construed to be legal or tax advice, as every client situation is different. This podcast has been prepared for information purposes only. The tax information provided in this podcast is general in nature, and each client should consult with their own tax advisor, accountant, and lawyer before pursuing any strategy described herein, as each client's individual circumstances are unique. We've endeavored to ensure the accuracy of the information provided at the time that it was written. However, should the information in this podcast be incorrect or incomplete, or should the law or its interpretation change after the date of this document, the advice provided may be incorrect or inappropriate. There should be no expectation that the information will be updated, supplemented, or revised, whether as a result of new information, changing circumstances, future events, or otherwise. We are not responsible for errors contained in this podcast or to anyone who relies on the information contained in this podcast. Please consult your own legal and tax advisor.